I just need people to know that no Gene Coons were racist in the making of this episode. <laughs> I'm Mark Farinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas-Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. This week we finally close the loop with Loki, then hunt down Lokai in Star Trek, the original series, muddled metaphor of race relation, and we get lost in some freaky-deaky lynch shit. The final episode of what could be the final chapter of Loki's saga has dropped. Did the god of mischief go out with a bang or a whimper? The back half of this season of Loki had the trickster finally come of age and take his place on the throne he always craved. To do it, he had to master time travel, save the TVA, and decide whether free will is worth the threat of total annihilation. Well, I have to say, I like the change in Loki. He gets his throne, his glorious purpose. But this version learns that it's not just about people genuflecting to him, serving him, because that's empty. It's meaningless. Leaders aren't served by others, but they actually serve those they lead. And this is what this version learns. He learns to save the ship. Yeah. He does the Spock thing at the end, including going into the chamber. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I talked a bit during our review of the first half about how the season is very, very different than the first. And after the fourth episode, I think you came to agree with me. The first season of Loki had an arc, but it was very episodic. It yeah. was very much like the old fugitive. Yeah. Every week we saw Loki and Sylvie visit a different place like Alabama or a planet about to explode or the realm where variants go when they're pruned. And they meet a different set of characters, all while just trying to get away from the folks trying to kill them. This season, however, was very light on new locations. In fact, it spent most of its time in one room, right? Yeah, it spent its time either in Obi's lab or the TVA's uh, loom viewing room. That's kind yeah. of hard to say. Loom <laughs> viewing room. And it was very much a six-hour movie. Yeah. This show, in its two seasons, and I know that the showrunner, and I think Tom Hiddleston has also said that, that this is the end of Loki. This is the end of a Loki show. There will not be a third season. And that season one and season two are, are bookends, like book one, book two. And I think season one is good setup. And I love the episodic nature of season one because we get all those characters. We see Loki and Mobius grow as partners and friends. We see Loki and Sylvie come into a weird incestuous relationship, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But then like all Marvel productions at some point in the film, like you get like all this good character stuff in the first 30 minutes. And then that all goes away in the second act as they have to solve the mystery box by getting the thing to do the thing, to fix the thing, to have a laser battle being showdown at the end. Yeah. Except we didn't get the laser beam showdown. So, Mark, that's a plus. That is a plus, I guess. <laughs> I mean, he's not battling his evil self with laser beams or magic yeah. or whatever. 
Man, I think the TVA really needs to take some design cues from Matt Jeffries. You never build something so that the important functions require you to go outside into a hostile environment. I'm watching this thing and I'm thinking, do they seriously need that extra 100 feet of gangway to make a difference in the shot that they're firing at the timeline? I mean, couldn't it have just been like a node sticking out of the wall like the Millennium Falcon's gun turret? <laughs> Why did they have to go outside? Uh, because, Mark, TV, visuals, you need something exciting to happen. Yeah, I'm just harping on this because so much time was wasted on trying to figure out how to get someone to the cannon safely with zero results. Including OB's scaled model to illustrate right. what they needed to do. Which they showed us like two or three times. This season wasted a lot of time. This uh, scenes are extremely drawn out. A lot of action is repeated over and over again, and we wind up seeing the same things in episode four and six that we saw in episode one. And I felt like all this trial and error could have been condensed to about five minutes. I don't see how this season couldn't have been a svelte two hours instead of six. There just wasn't a lot of story. And I've seen this criticism elsewhere that this, this is definitely a season that's very plot heavy and we don't get a lot of the good character stuff that we had gotten in the first season. We get like little subtle hints. And, you know, I love that scene with Sylvie and Loki in the bar. And Sylvie knows her universe is going. She's already seeing it in the peripheral of her vision. She knows it's going, mm -hmm. which is going to stay as long as she can. And I love that moment where she's like, well, what, what is the real reason you want the TV back? It's because he's lonely. He's a lonely God. And that he admitted that he needs people because the other Loki wouldn't. He would never say he needed his brother, never would have admitted he needed his family. This one does, but then he has to sacrifice himself to save those that he loves. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of realization and character motivation is a little lost in all the plot heavy, do the thing, to get the thing, to fix the thing, because we don't get those wonderful moments a lot with Loki and Mobius, for instance. We get... I think like four or five good, real meaty character scenes between them in the entire six episode season. I just felt like I wanted a little bit more in terms of the relationship aspects because you don't understand the importance of the relationship to Loki because you don't see it a lot in this season. Yeah, that definitely all comes down to the fact that you don't see these people doing very interesting things that can show you what their character is like and for them to have great interactions uh -huh. with. If they're all just sitting in a room... And not only that, but they're doing the same thing over and over again. They can't really show you a new piece of themselves because it's just on repeat. Uh -huh. And I mean, I do appreciate all the themes and character stuff that you're talking about. The first season of the show somehow made me like the unlikable, who is Loki. I've said I always hated this guy. So it was great to see them grow and evolve and escape their sad existences. I think Loki getting the throne that required him to understand responsibility and self-sacrifice was a really great cap for this character. They stuck the landing, but I don't know if I really enjoyed the road to get there. I think this is one of those things where the show got more involved in its narrative drive towards the end than it did the character arcs. Once again, this, is, this goes back to our discussion of serialized television where you get so caught up in the pulsing of the narrative to get to an ending that we don't have moments to breathe. 
Whereas when we discussed Scavenger's Reign last week, we discussed how that show takes a moment just to give you the atmosphere of its location, to let you breathe and live in the world. Here, it, in a lot of Marvel production, a lot of genre narrative serialized shows, it's just this just this constant beating of a pulse and a drum to get to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's all plot and no character at that point. Yeah, I also would really love it if I knew what in the world the villain wanted. I asked you last week if you understood, uh, what's his name, Koloth? Kang. Kang. Kang's plan. Cool. Do, do, do you get it now? Because I still don't. So in the first season, his plan was to have either Loki or Sylvie replace him. He was tired. He wanted to get out of the cycle. Um, I think that's what it was in the first season. And if anyone out there wants to let me know I'm wrong, you can always tweet us at Shipful of Jerks. But I think it was he was looking for a replacement. But yeah, that he just wants the status quo. Yeah, I just it, I don't feel I got a deserving explanation, but I'm OK with that because this is about Loki's cycle and in myth. He's stuck in a perpetual cycle. And this Loki is able to break that cyclical mischief that he does what he does and that's all he's ever going to do and blah 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 and loki is the true orbos not kang kang's just the catalyst for loki so in that i don't know if i really needed too much more of an explanation other than he's the baddie who set everything up he wants everything to be the same loki wants everyone else to live and instead of a loom that weaves all these timelines he creates a tree where the branches are allowed to flourish mm -hmm. and be maintained so that all life in all the different universes can survive. Can't get any more mythological than the tree of life at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so um, where does Loki fall in the Marvel timeline? I'm assuming that this is all before the multiverse of madness because there can't be a multiverse if there's a sacred timeline, right? Uh, there is a hint of that. Because now the new TVA's purpose is to monitor all the Kang variants and just prune them. Not the universes, just the Kang variants. And then they show a bit of Ant-Man and the Wasp. I mean, not a clip, but there's a file folder with an image from it. And they say, there was a problem on Earth, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they said that, oh, yeah, there was a Kang there, but that timeline took care of him. We don't have to do with anything. So yeah, I think these events probably happen before the multiverse of madness or do they happen before Endgame where Endgame created all the branches? Hmm. I don't know. It's time travel. It can happen whenever or never. <laughs> it's wibbly wobbly. It's wibbly wobbly. Temporal mechanics always has given me a headache. If I can have one more complaint about this season of Loki, it was the snap again. And Marvel is going to run out of ways to show people dissolving dramatically. Oh, spaghettification of yes. everyone. At least they, it got less gruesome because when it first happened to Victor Timely, like you could see his like organs just getting shredded and then his like jaw falling. And you're just like, wow, that is very vivid. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Kang and all his variants, there was actually very little of him this season, really only about two and a half episodes where there was any presence. I don't think replacing Jonathan Majors would have been that big a deal. And I'm saying this as Disney is apparently canceling a lot of his projects. 
So I'm guessing a recast has got to be in the works. Yeah, and uh, the ending of Loki provided an out because you can either do an, uh, another variant recast or you can just use another big Marvel baddie to do Secret Wars. I don't know who that would be. My knowledge of Marvel comics is not as extensive as my pre- and post-crisis DC knowledge. Mine is a nil. <laughs> well, then I can educate you on DC. <laughs> but this season of Loki provides them with an, an off-ramp to get rid of majors, to be, be sure. And I wonder, because you know how like usually all these Marvel productions, they have a teaser at the end, like a post-credit stinger? Yeah, I fast-forwarded to, to look for it. Yeah, it, it, there's not one, right? I was like, well, that's really odd. I like it because for once I've gotten a beginning, middle, and end. Even though this show was setting up secret wars, let's not you know beat around the bush, it was still just about Loki and the end of Loki. And the stuff that happens in this show might reverberate into secret wars, but it wasn't like a complete typical Marvel. This movie is just setting up the next movie that you have to watch so that you can watch the next three movies after that, which I'm a little <laughs> tired of. Uh, yeah. At this point, I haven't even seen The Eternals. I want to see the Marvels, but I haven't seen anything else. I'm very excited to see the Marvels, even though it's going to have apparently some secret invasion stuff in it. I would say skip Eternals because I don't even know how it fits into anything so far. It just doesn't, even though there's a, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to spoil it in case you do watch it. Oh, I, but, you can spoil it. I don't care. And I already <laughs> know about the dead God that's floating in the sky that apparently no one's talking about. That's exactly what I was going to say. There's a God sort of sticking out of the crust of the earth. That and no one talks like, about it. Yes. Whatever. I've seen, I've seen several tweets. There is this like thing that's hanging in the air. Like, what the hell is it? <laughs> no one knows. Yep. It's fine. Just forget about it. Just turn his corpse into a building. It's fine. Housing. Cheap housing. <laughs> so much talent in that film to bore me. <laughs> Don't hold back. Tell me how you truly feel. <laughs> I did like the little ending with Mobius and uh, Sylvie, where Mobius is watching a variant of himself who had the ability to have a family and ride jet skis. And I just thought that was a little cute moment between those characters. I'm okay if Tom Hiddleston never returns to a Marvel production. I think he's gotten a great ending and as much as I love the actor, I'm okay if this is the last of him. Mm. But I wouldn't mind seeing Sylvie come back. She can take up the parts that would have originally gone to Tom Hiddleston's Loki. Because I like her character and I like her take on the material. I would be shocked if that wasn't the plan. I uh, hope it and, is, yeah. And, and she is really great in the role. But do you like her with or without the bags? That's apparently been a debate this entire season. <laughs> I honestly wasn't. Looking at her hard enough to notice what her hair looked like <laughs> at any single point is just <laughs> sorry, folks. <laughs> These are not the details that that cross my mind. Uh, maybe I'm just making a bigger deal of it because I saw a few posts on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I'm sure whenever a woman exists in the world, lots of people have opinions about the way she looks. <laughs> yes, because that is what our geekdom does. They pick apart all the female characters and actresses playing them, unfortunately. 
And that could be yeah. a deeper discussion for us at some point because it happens Absolutely. way too much. In every part of life. We know most of our listeners are Trekkies, so we wanted to give you a little Star Trek content since, well, Paramount isn't giving us anything this week. We're going to talk about the classic original series episode, Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, and how everyone gets it totally wrong. Plus, it's the episode with a Loki variant, or is it Loki? <laughs> Same difference. <laughs> I think when the general public thinks of Star Trek, they think of Kirk and Spock and maybe Picard. And if you ask them to name an episode, the one with the black and white people will <laughs> probably be the one they mention guaranteed whenever a journalist or a twitter poster wants to prove star trek social commentary cred they will use let this be your last battlefield everyone knows the plot mark a fugitive named lokai comes aboard the enterprise followed by a police officer named bella the two skin tones are bifurcated into black on one side and white on the other but not on the same side. It's an allegory. <laughs> this has caused a lot of racial strife on their planet, as you would imagine, with Lokai's people treated as slaves and second-class citizens. It's meant to mimic the racial tensions in the United States between white and black people in what I think everyone will agree is the most heavy-handed, hanging-a-lantern, on the nose way you could possibly imagine. Yeah. But the problem is people watch, or let's be honest, don't watch this episode and just read the analysis and come away thinking Star Trek has made this woke commentary on race relations and how ridiculous our little Lilliputian-like differences are. And we should all just get along. <laughs> Mark, we just all got to get along. <laughs> yeah. So, so many reviewers put this really high up in their Star Trek episode lists for his message on tolerance. I think the Hollywood Reporter has it as number 11. And when people actually hate on this episode, like Zach Hanlon did for the AV Club, it's because they think it's too heavy handed. And I wonder if the bluntness of its main arc make it so that the subtler bits become invisible. Wait, there are subtle bits? What yeah. subtle bits? <laughs> Well, I think that that subtle part is actually really insidious because Lokai is not framed as a victim, but rather as equally bad as Bella. Yeah, I admire what this episode wants to do about race. But I will say that in the pantheon of 60s drama and its Gulliver's Travel version of this topic, it was still a little behind the time. There are legal shows that were dealing with this kind of stuff in a more direct way. But here, it's just Kirk having a drink with the oppressor really sends a mixed, almost conservative message about the whole damn thing. And Loki being just a, a, a hothead instead of a, a well-spoken Malcolm X or, or Martin Luther King Jr. also hinders this episode. He's just portrayed as Belly calls him a savage and an animal. And oh my God, where have we heard that dehumanizing language before? We're hearing it now. Yeah. And with everything going on with Gaza, the Congo, the Sudan, this episode's All Lives Matter message just, it doesn't land anymore. 
it's grotesque. I mean, I can see why they took this tack in 1969, but you have a white writer writing about this experience. And it has that same air of a Rayard Kipling story. I mean, maybe that's going too far, but... I don't think it is going too far. Bella sets Lokai up as a violent revolutionary who goes from planet to planet recruiting people to cause more violence. And we see him on the Enterprise break room trying to enlist Sulu and Chekhov. The funny thing is, Loki makes all these accusations about slavery and repression against Bella and his people. And Bella sort of denies it while also calling Loki inferior and boasting that all of his people have been rounded up in ghettos. And again and again, Kirk and Spock look at them and say, you two are the same. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, are clearly not the same. Here, you've got one side that has clearly got the upper hand. And it's like, if you were to beat up someone every day for weeks and weeks on end, and then they finally hit you back to defend themselves, you go, foul, I'm the victim. You're the aggressor. You're the animal. And that's exactly yeah. what's going on with Belly. And the fact that two heroes who are stringently progressive, as, as progressive as Roddenberry could be, and as equally regressive as, as we've seen in some instances, taking the stance of, you're both the same, you should just get along. It doesn't create understanding. And this is not the Kirk of the first season. The Kirk of the first season would have taken Loki's side, would have tried to protect him. Why are you after him? What do you want from him? Yeah. But this Kirk is like, ah, oh, you're just the same. You, you know, it's just ridiculous that you're dividing yourselves like this without addressing the larger problem. This entire episode is as skin deep as its bifurcated colors. There's no depth to it. Yeah, this is not even the Kirk of Cloudminders. No. Who sees an imbalance and immediately knows who's at fault. Both sides are being equally blamed for being hateful and destroying their planet, it doesn't occur to Kirk once to say, hey, Bella, maybe if you treated Loki's people like, well, people, none of this would have happened. Uh. I'm just confused as to what the writer thinks Loki's people or any repressed people are supposed to do in the face of injustice. This ending doesn't even make sense because whenever white people get into a race war, they win. That's the history of this country. Whether it's against rebellious slaves or native people, minorities can break all the windows they want. In the end, they aren't the ones with the military hardware. Yeah. Even in countries that have experienced full-scale terrorism like Britain or France or Israel, those societies are still standing. They were never in any danger. Because one side has the power to destroy the world, and the other one doesn't. So the premise here is just insanely hyperbolic and absurd to the point of almost becoming white supremacist propaganda. It's tone policing on an apocalyptic scale. Yes, because we get those wonderful images of burning buildings and, and ash as they're dramatically running through the same corridor over and over again. And then Kirk does nothing because where can they go? 
Okay, I it's it's as if this episode wants to be more profound than it is, right? And it yeah. fails on as an episode of Star Trek, it fails on every level of what makes a Star Trek a Star Trek. It fails on the social commentary. It fails on Kirk making a change. It fails on just involving the characters. <laughs> this is the story of Loki and Bella. It's not the story of Kirk and Spock and everyone else because they do nothing in this episode to create a change in what's happening. In, in that regards, it feels like it could have been a later season TNG episode instead of the original series. Yeah. People just sitting back and watching things happen. Yes. And you mentioned the burning buildings as this sort of scare imagery, which I'm sure was part of the local news at the time. It was certainly part of the news in 2020. Let's put some historical background here. It's 1969. The civil rights movement is still in full swing, and the Black Panther Party has chapters in 48 states. The Black Panthers, for those who don't know, were a community group that believed in legally arming themselves to counter the violent actions of the police in their neighborhoods. And what do you know? The police didn't really like that, right? They want to be able to bash heads in peace without worrying about getting any pushback. In fact, this fear pretty much led to the modern militarization of cops that we see today. And just one month before this episode aired, the police raided the home of a major Black Panther leader in Chicago and executed him while he was sleeping. Yes. The metaphor doesn't work here at all in this episode. Because it doesn't hit on those things that you just rightfully called out as happening in the zeitgeist of the time. Mm -hmm. the, the whole burning buildings is, that can be read wrong. It's not that if we don't get along, this is going to happen. No, no, no. If we don't control them, this is what's going to happen. Yes. Because whenever there's a riot or a protest, the mainstream media, of which I've worked in, always paints it as, oh, look how violent the protests got. Yeah. They never mention that the police start the shit or that bad actors come in posing as protesters and start causing problems. Or they don't frame it in. People are so fed up with the situation as it is that they've resorted to rioting. It's never framed that way. It's always framed, oh, look at us. The brown people are revolting again. Let's control them. That's what it's framed as. Yeah. And that's what this episode does. Yeah. I, I, I can actually get how if you're a lazy white suburbanite who just wants to keep their lawn nice and green in peace, you might see black people arming themselves and think, gee, that's, that's bad. They've taken this civil rights stuff too far, just like how some of those same suburbanite goofballs saw footage of a Wendy's burning down over and over on the news in 2020 and decided Black Lives Matter was a bunch of bad actors. To them, both sides are equally culpable somehow. Th these, these are the people who honestly believe that Mookie throwing a trash can through Saul's window was as bad as the police choking Radio Rahim to death on the street. And if you don't get that, reference out there. You guys need to watch more movies. And that's how you get a brain-dead slogan like, all lives matter, which, as you said, is the message this episode is trying to push. Yeah. And where is that slogan now? How's that being used? Because apparently all lives matter only if you're white, right? It doesn't matter to the people in Gaza. It doesn't matter to all the black teens that were killed by cops in the last few years. Yeah. yeah it doesn't matter. It's all lives matter means only white lives matter. That's what it means. 
It needs to be noted that the story for this episode is credited to Gene Kuhn's pen name, Lee Cronin. However, Kuhn's original story called for an angelic and a demonic character as Bella and Loki, kind of like the shadows and the Vorlons in Babylon 5. That's a perfectly reasonable coupling to equate motives and rhetoric. But it doesn't work when you change it to oppressed people and their oppressors. That element was brought in by teleplay writer Oliver Crawford. It is very much a white 60 males take on on race relations. And that's all I'm going to say. It's a 2020 males take on race relations. (laughs) Nothing has changed. That's the depressing thing. (laughs) That we have now a term, all lives matter, to describe something that happened 50 years ago. Yeah. Because it just happened again today. Ah. You like pornos? Dick Laurent is dead, and a couple's ever-deepening paranoia and despair come to a head in David Lynch's 1997 noir head trip, Lost Highway. Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette play Fred and Renee, a married couple whose relationship spans multiple timelines, universes, and personalities. Their lives are turned upside down when a mysterious videotape shows up on their doorstep, showing images of an intruder inside their home. So, Ryan, you are a huge noir fan, as well as a fan of Lynch's film Mulholland Drive, so I thought you might find Lost Highway interesting with its similarly abstract storytelling. What did you think? Well, like jazz, I had to be mature enough to finally enjoy Lynch. Younger me found him pretentious in his movies exercises in literary masturbation uh, or cinematic (laughs) masturbation. Uh, That is the best kind of masturbation. It is the best kind of masturbation. (laughs) You know, and, and maybe I'm probably more of a commercial writer than he is. But I do appreciate cinema. I love cinema. Uh, One of my favorite movies is, after all, a French film directed by a Polish director. You can't get more cinema than that. (laughs) You know, I can now appreciate what Lynch does well. And what I like about Lost Highway, and I had remember seeing bits and pieces of it on cable, but it never saw the whole thing together. Because I remember a few of the scenes, like especially the one where Patricia Arquette is naked, going into this shed, this shack that she calls a cabin. I'm like, it's a, it's a fuck shed. I don't know who would go in there. That keeps blowing up in reverse for some reason. It keeps blowing up in reverse. But I, I, you know, I saw an interview with uh, Lynch a while back. I wish I could find it again, but, and I think he gave this interview either years after blue velvet or shortly after blue velvet. Anyway, he says his movies don't provide clear answers, just lots of questions, uh, because that is life. And I think that was at the the moment that I finally grokked him, because life is this series of unanswerable questions. And this movie gives you no answers and just far more questions as you keep going through it. It just gets weirder and weirder, and it's dark, and it's obsessed with porn and sex and it's a mind fuck as Patricia Arquette's character is fucked by every male in this. 
is she one or two people? Is Balthazar Gettys Pete and Bill Pullman, the movie version of Bill Bruce uh, Boxleitner, Fred Madison, <laughs> one and the same? That's all I could see when I look at Bill Pullman. I'm like, he's like movies answer to Bruce Boxleitner. I was actually going to ask, is Bill Pullman the poor man's Bruce Boxleitner or is it the other way around? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to be nice after shedding on Let This Be Your Last Battlefield. I thought I'd be a little nice. I think that this movie is so dense that there's no way anybody's going to get the plot from it from our discussion. So I, I thought I'd just give a really quick plot synopsis as I see the film and maybe you will see it differently but basically Pullman and a brunette that's important a brunette Patricia Arquette are in a disintegrating marriage when Pullman gets a message on his intercom that Dick Laurent is dead whatever that means eventually Pullman murders Arquette and while in jail he morphs into a young mechanic the mechanic starts sleeping with a blonde Patricia Arquette who is the girlfriend of a gangster named Mr. Eddie who is also Dick Laurent. After murdering blonde Patricia Arquette's friend to get money to run away, the mechanic turns back into Bill Pullman, and blonde Patricia Arquette disappears. Mr. Eddie is seen sleeping with brunette Patricia Arquette. Pullman confronts him and kills him. He then goes back to his home and says, Dick Laurent is dead into the intercom. He's then chased by the police into the desert where he starts morphing into something else, but we don't know what. Does that sound right? Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. So, so okay, well, now that we're talking about it, right? It is. It, 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 this movie is so fucking surreal, you know? It's, it's, it's wonderfully surreal. It's got this phantasmatic horror that comes with noir, that nightmarish shadow of hell and fire. Uh, it reminded me a lot of uh, Nightmare Alley, and that's one where it's, uh, you know, it starts out, they talk about this alcoholic the geek in the carnival. Uh, and you know what a geek truly is. It's the guy who bites chicken heads off and all that stuff, right? Who swallows anything he can. He swallows yeah. anything he can, and, and he's a drunk. And that's a foreshadowing of the character in it that eventually he also ends up as the geek uh, in the carnival at the end but there's just this wonderful horror and nightmarish hell about it that i think is in this movie and if i were to describe what this film is there's a couple of ways you can do it conventionally that pete and fred aren't one and the same but they are two guys who made the same deal to get rid of two people who had caused them pain mr eddie uh dick Laurent, and Renee Patricia Arquette's character that she would wear a blonde wig when she was with Dick Laurent and you know all that stuff like you could just make it conventional right like strangers on a train they decided to crisscross yeah. right that's a conventional reading yeah and then here the more we get into it the more I'm like oh shit Lynch says this movie is about identity and maybe it's a dichotomy of identities like Renee and Alice are one and the same they're not two different people but they're two sides of one person Pete and Fred are two sides of the same person. So for me, The Lost Highway is this never-ending loop of purgatory where both these characters are condemned for eternity 
to repeat this over and over again, this murder, because the movie starts and ends basically with Dick Laurent is dead, right? He hears it in the beginning, and then we see him actually say And he hears the police sirens chasing himself away from the house. So it's a loop, right? And so to me, this is, it's purgatory. It's it's not hell. It's not heaven. It's purgatory. Uh, And what is it that Spock says? If all purgatories are self-made and we all have to live in them. Huh. I really think that's what's happening here. And, and to me, Robert Blake's character, the, the, the <laughs> a truly creepy man played by a truly creepy actor. My read on him is he's just that dark Jiminy Cricket of, of the Pete and Fred character. Yeah, he's like the Joker, but not in an incel way. No, no, not in an incel way. He's sort of like an imp. He's the imp, right? Who, yeah. who's, who's causing a lot of this, right? He's, you know, we've met before. We've done this before. He's working for the bad guy, but he's also an instrument for killing the bad guy. Yes, exactly. Because he's the one who puts the knife into Pullman's hand when he finally kills Laurent. It's almost like a drug hallucination, this entire movie. No. You think that the shadow people are chasing you and all that stuff. There's just sort of this kind of like what is real, what isn't. And it's like a fugue. Yeah, I feel like this movie is very much about dread. Yeah. And it's dread in so many different ways. And the way that dread is created is so incredible and artful. How this couple is receiving videotapes of an intruder coming deeper and deeper into their home Uh. each time and hearing about how the alarm has been going off, but we thought it was a false positive. And even the dread of like Pullman calling his home to see if Arquette is there as she said she would be and getting no answer. And then there is the constant dread of this mechanic that Pullman turns into who has this I like to call it the Idi Amin character. He's nice to the people he's nice to, but yeah. at any second he could lose his shit and you're dead. Yeah. And he's got that hanging over him, as well as, you know, Patricia Arquette acting as an imp herself and sort of pushing this sort of yeah. men to do wrong. It's an interesting use of the femme fatale character in noir as a catalyst for the male characters to degrade into their base natures. Yeah, the only thing that I kind of don't like about this film, though, is that, you know, Patricia Arquette is my favorite Arquette. I loved her in Medium. But almost all she gets to do in this film is be naked and sort of menaced or murdered. And in fact, the three women in this film really get short shrifted. This is one of the reasons why Roger Ebert hated Lynch. He thought he continually humiliated his actresses. Kind of like the put his disease in me scene in Blue Velvet. Yeah. And you can see it here when Patricia Arquette is forced to disrobe at gunpoint. Yeah. And we're all just looking at her. Yeah, there is a sense of humiliating women in, in Lynch's uh, work. Or, or is it more about the violence that men do upon women that's being commented on here? Yeah, I mean, it could be that also. It just all depends on what you're going to take as imagery for that. No, no. Is the imagery so exploitive that it doesn't quite work uh, to those ends? But you know what? There is a line that I picked up on when uh, Fred is in jail, and I'm not sure if it's a throwaway gag or some kind of pointed commentary, but 
uh, one of the guards played by Henry Rollins of all people. Yeah, I, yeah, you, I know who you noticed that. I noticed that. I was like, wait, is that Henry Rollins? Well, he tells another guard. That wife killer's looking pretty fucked up. And the other guard responds. Which one? And then they both start <laughs> laughing. And I'm thinking, is this a nod to the fact that over half of murdered women are killed by their spouses? Probably, yeah. Well, you know who definitely killed his wife? Robert Blake. Yep, Robert Blake. It's awful because Blake steals this whole movie. Oh, he is. Yeah, he is. He's like the smile he gives when he, he talks to Fred. It's just so like, it's so, I, 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 it, it leaves chills on your spine. Yeah, that whole scene where they're talking on the cell phone, he tells him to call the house because I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here and I'm in your house at the same time. That's one of the best scenes in all of cinema, yeah. I think. It's so perfect and so weird. And, you know, Blake designed that character. Really? Wow. Yeah, Lynch said, okay, here's the character. How do you want to look? And Blake left and shaved his eyebrows off and put on kabuki makeup and was like, here I am. <laughs> That is all Robert Blake. That man is... <laughs> I mean, but yeah, this is a very gruesome movie to get through. Very gruesome. There is a lot of... <laughs> like when the drug guys... Uh, what's his name? Andy. When he gets his head slammed in the coffee table. My God, what a brutal, brutal moment. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, though, I mean, it's... Less brutal than some of Lynch's other work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart is really, really bad on that front. And, I mean, Blue Velvet can be really... I mean, as bad as Patricia Arquette is treated in this film, I, I, it's, it's not as bad as the way Isabella Rossellini is treated. No. Which was just absolutely insane. Yeah, that was watching torture porn for sure. Uh, yeah. which yeah. ironically this movie has a lot of that going on <laughs> in yeah. Dick Laurent's films. <laughs> yeah. And even Mulholland Drive, you know, I can never figure out if the lesbian love scenes in Mulholland Drive were some kind of amazing hot sex between two women that not really been on the cinema before, or if it's sort of porny exploitation. It really rides the line. Yeah. I don't think it's as bad as the one in Requiem for a Dream at the end, but <laughs> God, <laughs> that just stays with you and not in a good way. But what I love about this is, is that it does take that gritty aspect and that taking the bandaid off the worst aspects of society, mm -hmm. the levitious kind of grotesque sexual appetites of people. Mm hmm. And I like that there's an exploration of that. I think what noir does well is living in those spaces. I also think that Lynch is really good at tearing apart visuals that we think of as safe and comforting. In Blue Velvet, we had a very 50s-looking suburban area torn apart by the festering drug sex cabals that were underneath it. And in this movie, we get a lot of nostalgic 50s imagery we've got greasers we've got old cars and we want to cling on to that as sort of look at this americana look at this thing that is safe and then he sort of dissects it and rips it apart and says no 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 this was never what you thought it was 
this was always ugly. Like in Blue Velvet, suburbia is really the most creepiest part of his films. <laughs> yes. I'd rather live in the dark world of snuff films than in the suburbia that Pete finds himself in after he gets out of jail. <laughs> He's just watching that kid. I mean, I live in suburbia right now. Not my first choice, you know, but it is. It is truly boring. And you can feel the rise of boredom and the utterly creepiness of well-maintained lawns and neighbors who obsess over HOA rules. That's truly insidious, Mark. And the proliferation of nest cameras that are watching you. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Because even though these folks have sort of consigned themselves to what they think is a safe place, they're still afraid of everything. Yeah. And maybe they should be. <laughs> Well, what's funny is you got people in suburbia now arming themselves because the others are arming themselves. So we have to arm ourselves. Uh, yeah. The gun couple. The gun. The, <laughs> do you remember them? Yeah. The gun couple. You know, I'd love Lynch to do a movie about mega churches and suburbia as a neo noir in this style. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> The sex perversions in churches, you could do so much with that. That's why I was like, this is ripe material for Lynch. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Somebody needs to do that movie. <laughs> you know, I, oh, it's a wonderfully shot movie. Uh, wonderfully shot. I love Lynch's camera work. I love the look of this film. The camera work, the lighting, the way people move and inhabit these spaces. But one thing's for sure, though. Do not watch this movie if you're an epileptic. There are oh. a lot of flashing lights. Even I had to look yeah. away in the jazz club. I was like, well, that's a little too much for me. <laughs> it's a little little too much flashing lights. Um, you know, but it's it's just, it's moody. I love the opening shot of the, the highway. Mm -hmm. You know, as if you're sitting on the, the hood of the car and you're going through at night. And, you know, you, the, the way the titles come at you in this almost noir-like fashion. Mm -hmm. And that the ending and the beginning shot are the same. Like, it's a loop. You know, he, he's stuck in a loop. Yeah. Which is interesting since we were talking about Loki today, because now we have, like, two stories that involve a loop or a snake eating its tail. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah. I love absurdist abstract art, which is why The Doors is one of my favorite bands. You're not made a Doors fan. You're born a Doors fan. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. I got to steal a car, but I can listen to Jim Morrison do nonsensical spoken word poetry for hours because the imagery is much more important than the substance. And that's what a David Lynch movie is. There are so many scenes in this film that defy logic in, in a good way. The whole film defies logic. Lynch defies logic. <laughs> His hair certainly does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You thought Anson Mount had a mount of hair. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's probably why David Lynch's Dune will always be, no matter what director takes it on, his will be the best version of Dune because it just defies logic and it's wacky as shit. Yeah, and we'll probably talk a lot more about that when we watch the the second part of the Dune epic. Where everything is gray and 
sand. <laughs> yes. It gets in everything, Ryan. <laughs> I hate sand. The Zoomers among us are going to be really confused by how much this movie relies on videotapes. <laughs> oh, yeah. They were these large cassettes that we fed into machines to put movies up on the screen. And you had to rewind them if you wanted to watch the movie again. And that could take almost as long as watching the movie. <laughs> Remember when huge movies had, you had to have two tapes because the movie was so long. <laughs> Urban Outfitters is going to start selling oh, I uh, know, VHS I know, tapes probably. again. Because the real way to watch a movie is fuzzy and covered with... Tracking lines. <laughs> and the hiss again. <laughs> Gotta have that hiss. That's it for this week. I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all her work at sockpuppet.us. And you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter and Mark2000 on Blue Sky. And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter or Ryan Thomas Riddle on Blue Sky. If you want to tell us Dick Laurent is dead, you can find the podcast on Twitter too at ship full of jerks. Oh, we didn't talk about Marilyn Manson. (laughs) (laughs) Not that he needs much discussion. I was terrified by him because I was like, oh, God, that piece of crap is in this. Yes, but at least he gets killed. He does. He gets murdered. It's kind of like seeing John Majors get murdered and Loki over and over again. That was kind of satisfying. 